Amen. We trust all that is blessing. It's that reading of his uh, words and having uh, finished our previous uh, series looking at the Christian's clothes in the book of Colossians, I thought it would be good for us uh, to begin uh, a new series and I thought it would be good to go through a book of the Bible and I thought it would be good to look at this uh, short book of Lamentations um, together. I think it's uh, good just to... At the start, just have an introduction to the book, just to consider something of the background and the layout of the book. And uh, as you'll see in your Bible, most people believe that this particular book was written by Jeremiah, the Lamentations of Jeremiah, and there's a number of reasons for that, the style of the writing and the fact that Jeremiah says that he would weep for the people, and here we have a book that's full of weepings and lamentations. And uh, as you'll notice, the book has five chapters. There's only uh, a short book. Uh, Each of these five chapters stands um, alone. Each one is a a unique, separate, uh, poetical lament. It was customary in those days uh, to write a poem or to give a, a speech in public recognition of the death of some great or beloved person. David, for example, in 2 Samuel... Uh, does this. Uh, You remember in 2 Samuel chapter 1 and verse uh, 17 there, um, it says there that David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan his son. And in the following verses we have pens there, well we have what David pens um, in this lamentation to these two uh, people, these to King Saul and to Jonathan, his son. And very similarly, we have in um, 2 Chronicles and uh, chapter 35, we read that Jeremiah does the same. 2 Chronicles chapter 35 and verse 25, it says that Jeremiah lamented for Josiah. And all the singing men and the singing women spake of Josiah in their lamentations to this day and made them an ordinance in Israel and so what Jeremiah wrote was given to the singers and they sung those lamentations but what we have here in these five songs is not lamenting of a deceased king rather it's the lamenting of a, of a desecrated kingdom in 586 BC you'll recall that after a long siege the Babylonians eventually broke through into the city of Jerusalem and they sacked the city and they and they burnt it to the ground just as the prophet Jeremiah had prophesied. And these are sorrowful songs about the ruins of God's holy city, Zion, and the truth that God's covenant people had been disgraced and are now in despair, and they've been taken into captivity. An interesting detail about these these laments is you'll notice that the one that we just read is 22 verses long. Chapter 2, again, is 22 verses Uh, The first um, four are arranged as acrostics. You'll notice uh, 22 verses corresponds to the 22 uh, letters of the Hebrew alphabet. The only slight change is you come to chapter 3 and you have 66 verses. And there you find that there are three times as many. There's three verses for each letter. So you have three verses with equivalent of A three verses, equivalent of B, and so on, going through. 
you have these acrostics. And then the last one has 22 verses, but it's not in an acrostic form. And so we have these five lamentations, these five elegies, as they're often called, five sorrowful songs as Jeremiah looks out over the city of Jerusalem and sees it burning and as it's um, sacked by the Babylonians. So that's a little bit of a a background, as it were, to the book, but perhaps you're wondering why I chose this book uh, to study. Perhaps uh, you you, you wonder whether I want you to all leave feeling depressed and uh, dejected on a Wednesday night. Well, far from it. Let me just give you quickly three good reasons why it's worth studying the book of Lamentations. And the first is because it's often neglected. And yet we know from 2 Timothy chapter 3, don't we, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. And so if we're then to be whole Christians, we need a whole Bible. And this book is part of God's infallible word, so it's, in, it's useful for us. It's there for instruction. But a second reason why I want us to look at this book is because it seems to me a very appropriate book for these days. The book highlights the terrible effects that come upon a nation that rejected God. It details for us the inevitable sorrow and distress that accompany abandoning God's words. And so it's written for our learning. It's written so that we do not follow Jerusalem's sad example. It shows to us what God promises to do will always take place. And God has promised, hasn't he, that when we reject him and forsake him, that ruin comes. A nation that is righteous is exalted, but a nation that turns its back upon God is put down. Now, all of God's word, of course, is applicable in all ages, but there are times, aren't there, and situations when certain parts are more appropriate. And I think that the age in which we live and the national situation that we are in, I think we could say there are many similarities to the days of Jeremiah. And so we should take extra heed to uh, this part of God's words. But there is a, a third reason for studying this book, and that's because Christ is here. While the book is sombre in tone, nevertheless, throughout the book, we see tinges of hope. And we see that particularly in chapter 3, for example, when we come to that, when we have the mention of God's faithfulness in verse 22, 23, 24, particularly. We are being reminded, of course, that the believer's hope is in Christ. And God was faithful to his promises. And, of course, he sent his Son. Just as it is with every page of God's Word, Christ is present, if only we would look for him. And so even through this book of Lamentations, which is very sombre and sad and very sorrowful, Christ is even here. Well, with the uh, the remaining time that we have tonight, I want to just skim through this first Lamentation with you and um, just draw out the sense of what Jeremiah is saying. And then at the end, just to note with you just three very quick points of application as we uh, think about this um, chapter together. You notice that the book begins in verse 1 there with this word, how, this, this questioning word. 
In the Hebrew Bible, that's actually the name given to the book. The, that first word, how, is the, the name of the book in, in Hebrew. And uh, the word how there is not a question so much, but it's a, a word of bewilderment. How has this come about? How have these events happened? It's not necessarily asking God, you know, how, what's the order, what's the historical situation, but it's an exclamation, how? How does this city, he says, sit solitary? Jerusalem had once been a bustling city, it had been full of people, he says. Traders came and went. It was a thriving and, and prosperous place, but now, he says, she stands empty, she stands alone, there's nobody there. The word solitary there indicates to be sort of desolate and uninhabited, And he says that she's become a widow as well. How has she become as a widow? You recall, of course, that the Lord had already told the people through the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31 that they were married to him, chapter 31 and verse 32. You look at the end of that verse, Jeremiah 31 and verse 32, he talks about his covenant that they break at the end. Although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. The Lord was married to them. He had entered into this union with his people. Remember how Isaiah writes in in chapter 54 and verse 5, For thy maker is thine husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Lord, of course, was the most loving, the most faithful husband, but Jeremiah says here, Jerusalem is like a a woman who is now destitute of her her good and and kind spouse. She's a widow. But in verse 1 there, the prophet goes even further, because not only is she solitary and seemingly abandoned, but she is now a tributary, he says at the end of verse 1. Before the nation enjoyed a glorious history, one of success and victory, Before, particularly under Solomon, the nation had been great. She'd enlarged her borders. She was loved and respected and feared by other nations. They'd brought their gold and their silver as presents. But now, instead of controlling, they are controlled. Instead of being the head, they are the tail. And verse 3 spells it out clearly that Judah is gone into captivity. Freedom and liberty is, is gone. Bondage is now their lot. Verse 2 says that, the, that this is the cause of great weeping. She weepeth sore in the night. Literally, it, it reads, she weeps, weeps in the night. It's a double, a Hebrew, one of these Hebrew doubles where they use the word twice to heap, as it were, the sense on. This is, she's weeping and weeping and weeping. And the people that Judah trusted in, her lovers and her friends, as they're called here, have proved to be of no use and, and no help. Instead, they've become her enemies. The nations that they had relied upon, you remember they had come into treaties with Egypt and Moab and Ammon in particular, and they'd leaned upon them, and yet they had turned their backs upon Judah. They had sought refuge, you see, in other nations instead of seeking refuge in God's. But we read that their persecutors overtook them in the end. It says there in verse Three. In verse 5 we read that her adversaries are the chief, her enemies prosper. Even, we read there, the little children, they are taken 
into captivity. We know that very few people were left behind when the Chaldeans came. If you turn, for example, to uh, Jeremiah 39 and verse 10, the chapter begins, Jeremiah 39, in the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month came Nebuchadrezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army against Jerusalem, and they besieged it. But in verse 10 it says, But Nebuzar, Adan, the captain of the guard, left of the poor of the people which had nothing in the land of Judah. The only people who were left behind were the poor. Even children were taken. And back in Lamentations chapter 1 and verse 7, it says that the people fell into the hand of the enemy and none did help. And yet this shouldn't have surprised the people. Jeremiah had prophesied this, but Moses had also warned the nation that such things would take place if they abandoned God and his ways. If you just turn with me to Deuteronomy and chapter 28, the chapter that we, were, we referenced briefly on Sunday, the passage that speaks of blessing and cursing in Deuteronomy uh, 28. And verse 63 and following, it says there, And it shall come to pass, that as the Lord rejoiced over you to do you good and to multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and to bring you to naught. And ye shall be plucked from off the land whither thou goest to possess it. And the Lord shall scatter thee among all people, from the one end of the earth even unto the other, And there thou shalt serve other gods, which neither thou nor thy fathers have known, even wood and stone. And among these nations shalt thou find no ease, neither shall the sole of thy foot have rest. But the Lord shall give thee there a trembling heart, and failing of eyes, and sorrow of mind. So the Lord had warned them that weeping would be their lot, sorrow would follow them. Verse 11 of our Uh, passage indicates that there was also a famine to add to the people's misery. They seek bread, it tells us, uh, but they can't find anything to to relieve their souls. But there wasn't only physical suffering, but there was also spiritual suffering and misery. Look at verse 4 in particular. It speaks there of the ways of Zion, or the ways to Zion. It could perhaps be better translated, the ways to Zion do mourn because none come to the solemn feasts. These were the roads that, were, that led up to the holy city of Zion. And in the past they had once been thronged with pilgrims that, and worshippers travelling up for the various feasts. And they would have been joyful as they went, as they sang the songs of Zion. But instead of joy, the ways of Zion do mourn. And it says that her gates are desolate too. Remember that in Psalm 87 where it says that the Lord loveth the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. But but now they're desolate, they're ruins. The priests, we read in verse 4, that they sign. There's no more temple, no more altar, no ark of the covenant, nowhere to perform their vows and bring their sacrifices. Their enemies mock at her Sabbaths, we read there in verse 7. The Sabbath, of course, was perhaps one of the most distinguishing features of God's covenant people. Other nations had their gods and their sacrifices and their worship, but none of them had a Sabbath. 
And now instead of being amongst God's people in God's land and God's holy hill on God's day, verse 3 says that she dwelleth among the heathen. They're surrounded by false and idolatrous worship. In verse 10, the prophet points this out even you know, in striking language for the people of his day. He says there that they have entered, he says that the heathen entered into her sanctuary. This was, you remember that the, only the priest could enter the holy place and only the high priest could enter the most holy place and that was only once a year and not without blood. And yet now these pagans and uncircumcised had run amok through the very temple They'd profaned what God had called holy and defiled it and demolished God's house. But all this leads to, I think, to a question, why? Why had there been such devastation? Well, verse 8 perhaps says it in the most clearest of terms. Jerusalem hath grievously sinned, therefore she is removed. It was because of her sin and her transgressions, that all of this had fallen upon her. It was because the, the, they had, as a nation, turned away from their gods. It was because of their idolatry, their whoredom in going after the gods of the nations round about them. And it says there in verse 8, there's about how she's now exposed. They've seen her nakedness. Her filthiness is in her skirts. In verse 9, the expression speaks of her filthy sins being open and manifest to everyone. And then in, notice in verses 13 and 14, it gives us a number of pictures which display something of the consequences of this sin. The first there is, talks about a fire in his bones that prevaileth against them. It's, it's, a, it's a fire that is, uh, cannot be put out, as it were, that rages. It's all prevailing and consuming. Then he talks about being caught in a net. And then verse 14, he uses a, a very striking illustration of a yoke. And he takes what was a familiar picture to the, to the people of, the, of a beast. And here the beast is refusing the yoke and is unwilling to, to wear it. And so a beast would kick it off and toss it from their head. And yet here the yoke has been bound, it's been reefed. And it comes about the, the neck, it's so, so secure and tight, it, it grips about the neck so almost to strangle the animal. So the strength of the animal is taken away. And it's interesting, isn't it, to note that these pictures of sin and all this, the consequences of sin, while it was their sin that had brought this misery upon them, it was the Lord's doing. Look again at verse 5. Notice what it says there. Her adversaries are the chief, her enemies prosper, for the Lord hath afflicted her. Verse 12, the same again. The Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. Verse 14, the Lord hath delivered me into their hands. Verse 15, the Lord hath trodden underfoot all my mighty men. This was the Lord's doing. He had to punish them because of their sin. Babylon did not destroyed Jerusalem because they were mighty, but rather it was the Lord who used them as his instruments of judgment. And the Lord still does this, doesn't he, in our lives? He uses sickness, he uses pain, he uses enemies, he uses trying circumstances and problems 
to afflict us and to refine his people when they sin. Is that not, in a sense, what the pandemic has been all about, about refining his people, sifting the church, trying them? And we see that here in in Lamentations chapter chapter 1. The Babylonians came to sift God's people and bring God's judgment upon his covenant children. But then from verses 18 through to the end of the chapter, we see the prophet acknowledges that this God who's brought this judgment is righteous. He says the Lord is righteous. He he acknowledges that all of this is, is just. It's not the Lord who had abandoned them, but it was them that had rebelled against his commandments. They had forsaken him. And the prophet expresses some of the same grief and and agony uh, that has already been expressed. He he expresses it again here between 18 and 22. But mixed in here is we see him praying. In actual fact, we occasionally see throughout the lament scattered prayer. Look at verse 9, for example. O Lord, he says, behold my affliction. There's this uh, ejaculatory prayer that comes out of him. Verse 11, again, we see the same. O Lord, he says, consider, see, O Lord, and consider, for I am become vile. And then in verse 20 in particular, he prays again to this righteous Lord, this righteous God, and he says, behold, O Lord, for I am in distress. Look, he says, look, look, consider my position. Look at the position of the city. And he calls on God to to listen. Look at what the enemy is saying. Look at how they laugh. Look at how they mock. Look at how they they think this is funny that God's people have been uh, turned over in this way. And yet, mixed in with this prayer, we see his confidence that one day the enemies of God will be like he is now. He says, they have heard that I sigh, there is none to comfort me. All mine enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that thou hast done it. Thou wilt bring the day that thou hast called, and they shall be like unto me. He says, look, look at their wickedness. And he's confident, you see, that God, who is righteous, will have to judge their sin too. If God has judged his people's sin, then he will have to judge their sin also. And so he's confident that one day God is going to avenge his elect. And so he says, let all their wickedness come before thee. He says, look, look. Lord, see what they're doing, see their wickedness too, and do unto them as thou hast done unto me for all my transgressions. For my sighs are many and my heart is faint. And so here we have this lament over the city of Zion as it lies in ruins. And so uh, as we close tonight, I just want to think about some points of application from this a lament of Jeremiah here. And I think the first thing that we can see from all of this is the awful consequences of sin. The awful consequences of sinning against God. As we read this description of Jerusalem tormented and in despair, as we read of the, the desolation here and the weeping and the bitterness that she now feels, we, we see, don't we, just how awful sin is and the consequences that follow from sin. Sin binds. Sin is like that heavy, tight yoke strangling the sinner. Sin is a net that entangles us. Sin leaves us desolate. It afflicts us. It leaves us, as Jeremiah says, in bitterness in verse 4. Sin always leaves us worse than before. 
And here, friends, is one of the great warnings from this book. If we dabble with sin, it will destroy us. If we think that we can play with fire, then the fire will burn us. I met a, a man once, and he, um, he sadly was unfaithful to his wife, and he went off with another lady. And then a number of years later, he came back to his wife, and he apologised, and uh, the lady, I think, if I remember correctly, took him back in and he said once to me, he said, I had to do that. I had to, I had to go deep into sin to find out how great God's mercy is. And he was almost proud of the fact that he had done such a grievous sin. And he made out that it was almost better that he had sinned and seen the mercy of God than if he had never sinned at all. But that's not what this chapter shows to us here. No man ever sins and prospers. Verse 8, you notice that verse there, how it talks about Jerusalem, how grievously sinned. That's another one of those Hebrew doubles, like the weep, weep that we saw. Here though it's sin, sin. Jerusalem of sin, sins. Sin never leaves us better off. And here Jerusalem had not just sinned once or twice, but over and over and over again. One sin led to another, and then to another, and then to another. And isn't that so often true in our lives? We see it, don't we, in the life of David. One sin of laziness, how it led to another sin, and to another sin, and to another sin, until eventually we have full-blooded murder. And each one of Jerusalem's sins here had taken her further down and down, and away and away from God's. And this is so often how sin works. A gradual departure from God. A bit like a boat, you know, moored at a, at a dock and then the rope becomes loose so that it gradually and often imperceptibly begins to drift. Before you know it, the boat's way out of the harbour, but you wonder how on earth it got there. It was just slow little movements drifting away. And sin places us in the greatest of danger. And just as for the God's people here, sin brings of its sorrow. Psalm 32 verse 10 says, Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. And so how we need to guard our hearts, don't we? And to keep them, as Solomon says, with all diligence. Sin is an awful thing. But secondly, though, we need to see the need to lament over a forsaken Zion. The need to, to lament over a forsaken Zion. Jeremiah here looks on at Jerusalem. He looks on at the city. He sees that God's temple was destroyed. He sees the altar has been cast down. He sees the sanctuary has been defiled. This is where, of course, God had promised to dwell with his people, to abide with his people. And when Jeremiah saw all of this, he says in verse 16... For these things I weep, mine eye, mine eye runneth down with water. And friends, we should look on at the church of Jesus Christ today and there's much that should grieve our hearts. In many places we see how the world has entered into the sanctuary as it were. We see how holy things have been polluted and defiled. The profane and the filthy have crept in. Worldly music, worldly worship, worldly ministers. We no longer see people thronging to church just as the ways to Zion in Jeremiah's day were empty. 
We see so few young men training for the ministry. We see so many churches closing their doors. We see so many cutting the number of services. We see a mocking of the Sabbaths, as in verse 7. And these things should make our eyes overflow with tears. Friends, this evening, how often do we mourn for the state of Christ's church? Not only do we look at the church, but we then have to look at our own hearts, don't we? How often do we mourn over our own hearts and the defilement of our own hearts and the, and the way that we have rebelled against God and the enemy often comes and overtakes us? We should be like the psalmist in Psalm 122. Turn with me to Psalm 122. This is um, one of the songs that would have been sung on the way to Zion. One of the songs of degrees as they ascended up on the feast dates. And we quoted this verse at the very beginning of our service last Lord's Day morning. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. But you notice what it says in verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love thee. Peace be within thy walls and prosperity within thy palaces. For my brethren and companions' sakes, I will now say, Peace be within thee. Because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek thy goods. Friends, there's a, a model prayer that we should pray for the God's people throughout the world. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray there would be prosperity in the place of worship. But thirdly, and the last point of application this evening, um, we should also note that even though there is sorrow here and there is lamentation, there are also glimmers of hope. And we should always remember the hope that we have. You know, we sorrow not as those who have no hope. And Jeremiah spoke there back in verse 1 of being like a widow, but in fact God's covenant people were still married to the Lord. But in verse 12, I think we have perhaps the uh, clearest sign, the clearest glimmer of hope, because here I think we're directed to Christ. Now, a lot of the commentaries refuse to let anyone say that Christ is here. Um, They'll tell you it's nothing more than sentimentality. But I think that's, that's nonsense when we read this verse. He says here, it is, in, is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Behold, and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which is done unto me, wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. And here we have, I think, the words of Christ. He is the one who has the greatest sorrows because of sin. Not his own sin, but the sins of his people. On the cross he bore Our sin, didn't he? It was the Lord who afflicted him. Isaiah 53 makes that clear, doesn't he? That it was the Lord who bruised him. It was the Lord that had put him to grief. The day of the Lord's fiercest anger was not the day that his wrath fell on the beautiful Zion, but the day of his fiercest anger was the day that his wrath fell on his altogether lovely son. And friends, this is where our hope is. It's always in Christ, isn't it? We're safe in him. While there are many things that we may lament over in this world, while there are many things that we may lament over in the church and in our own hearts, we must always be looking, shouldn't we, to the author and the finisher of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so even in this lament here, we see those seeds of hope for God's people. 
Yes, Jerusalem was sacked. Yes, the temple was destroyed, but one day God would come to his temple and the Lord Jesus Christ would come and he would save his people.